We came across Grace Bible Church and we quickly realized that they were teaching from the Scripture. They uh, were teaching the grace of Christ. They were loving college students and they were loving missionaries and they were loving each other. So we jumped into the church and off we went. Probably one of the biggest influences that Grace had on, on us as a couple and each one of us individually is learning how to love other people and learning how to pour out our lives into other people's lives instead of looking for everybody else to take care of us. When we start trying to apply an eternal perspective to life and knowledge that our mistakes are forgiven by Christ, how do we apply that in the way we react with other people, the way we deal with other people, the way we love other people? Fundamentally, when we draw the line on where we have time to do things, it's trying to commit to things that have eternal value, and this is the place that that commitment lands. I have learned to hold things loosely that I used to hold very tight. I mean, you just cannot take it with you, so you might as well give it away. What do I really believe in? Do I believe that God loves me? Well, yes, I do. Well, if I believe that, then everything else is going to take care of itself, and if I believe that, then I believe that I'm also called then to give that love away. If you'll pray with me. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you love us so much that you died for us and rose from the dead to give us eternal life as a free gift. And just as Carolyn said at the end of that video, if we believe that you love us that way, then Lord, we pray that you would help us to make it our ambition in life to give away your love to other people. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would break the hold that the things of this world have on our hearts and that you would replace our love for the things of this world with a greater and greater love for you and, and for your love and, and for the mission that you've given us to share your love with the people of this world. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would help us to make it our ambition in life to help people find and follow you. Because you are worthy of that, Jesus. You, you are worthy of every person on this planet bowing the knee to you and proclaiming that you are our Savior and our Lord, our Creator and our God. And, and so we pray, Lord Jesus, that you would turn our eyes and our hearts towards you and help us to love you so much that we could not help but to tell others about you. We pray, Lord Jesus, help us as we go forth this week to share your love with this world that is in such desperate need. We pray all this for your glory, your honor, your kingdom, Lord Jesus. Amen. You can turn in your Bibles, if you have them, to Matthew chapter 6. We're in week number 4 of our Every Knee series. My wife asked my 8-year-old son this morning what Every Knee was about, and he said, well, it's, it's about us pushing people down onto their knees. And... <laughs> Nobody. Physical violence is not part of this particular sermon series. Uh, Every knee is about challenging each and every one of us to give all that we are and all that we have to Jesus. This is a time in, in our church, in our individual lives, when we get to think about how worthy Jesus is and think about whether we are truly offering all that we have and all that we are to him and, and to help us, to challenge us, to give all that we are and all that we have to Jesus, we have been trying to answer a question 
each week. Why should we become generous and joyful givers? And we started out with a bunch of wrong answers, and then each week we have been exploring one correct answer to that question. So why should we become generous and joyful givers? Well, week number one, because giving is worship and God is worthy of our worship. Week number two, because giving is how we invest our lives in eternity. Week number three, last week, because we are rich. God has blessed us so much and rich people should be generous. And now week number four, our fourth answer to the question, why should we become generous and joyful givers? Because giving breaks our idols. Now, when, when you hear the word idol or, or idolatry, probably you think of these little statues made out of stone or wood or metal that people would carve or create and, and then would pray to and, and offer sacrifices to. This, this is as old as humanity itself, this idea of, of making statues of gods. These particular idols are, are thousands of years old. Now, to a lot of Westerners, they look at this idea of creating a little statue and praying to it. And, and to many Westerners, it kind of seems like a silly idea, like, why, why would you pray to a little piece of stone or wood? Well, ancient people weren't silly. They, they knew that the wood or the stone or the metal wasn't magic. They didn't think that it had power. What they believed, and this is what's behind ancient idolatry as well as modern, they believed that if you spent enough time and worked with enough skill to create a beautiful enough idol, you could motivate a god to come live in your idol. That's what an idol is. It was a house for a god. And, and if you could somehow get a god to come live in your idol, then you could offer sacrifices and, and worship to that god. And maybe, just maybe, that god would give you what you want in life. And ultimately, that's what idolatry is always about. It's about getting what you want in life. And actually, you, you can see that in the Old Testament. God says this in Ezekiel fourteen three. Son of man, these men who have created idols, they have set up their idols in their hearts. The point of what God is saying is idolatry is not about the little statue made out of stone or wood or metal, whatever it is. It's about the desires of your heart. Heart in the Bible, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, it's not referring to the beating organ in your chest. It's referring to your desires. That's what heart means in the Bible, your affections, what you want most in life, he's saying that these people who bow before these little statues, they're doing that because they want something from it. And what matters most to them in life is getting what they want. Ultimately, that's always what idolatry is about. It's about worshiping your desires, making your desires ultimate in life. So for ancient people, these little idols were simply tools that they used to try to get what they desired in life. And, and they were pantheists, meaning that they worshipped lots of different gods, and each god ruled over a particular area of life. And so if you wanted a particular thing in life, you just had to make sure to create an idol for that particular god. And so, for example, if you lived in the ancient Near East during the Old Testament, if you wanted to have a rich harvest, because that's where money came from, from farming in the ancient world, well, you would worship Baal. 
Because Baal was the god over crops. If, if you were married and, and you hadn't had children yet, you were struggling with infertility, you would worship Asherah because she was the goddess of fertility. If you were at war with another group of people, you would worship Anat, the god of warfare. And so idols were just tools that ancient people used to try to get whatever they wanted in life. Now, here in the Western world, we don't tend to use little statues as tools to compel the gods to give us what we want. We just use this stuff. This is what idolatry looks like in the modern world. For most people, it's all about money. It's about wealth. We don't use statues. We use bills to try to get what we really want in life. We worship Money And Paul warned us about this idea of money, of wealth, becoming an idol in our lives. He tells us in Colossians 3, 5, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. So what is greed? Well, greed is when you are not content with the money you have. You want more. And so you chase after money. You make the accumulation of money the ultimate goal of life. When, when that becomes your goal, that is idolatry. You are just as guilty as the ancient Israelite bowing a knee to Baal when you chase money. And that's greed, that's idolatry. We see a similar thing in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Paul says, For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. For some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Now, it's important to look carefully at the words Paul uses. Did you notice? He does not say money is the root of all sorts of evil. Money isn't evil. Money isn't righteous. It's just a thing. Matter of paper or money or, or digits on a computer. It's not evil or righteous, just like those little statues. We're not in and of themselves evil or righteous. There's nothing unrighteous about carving wood to look like an animal it becomes evil for you when you worship it as a god to get what you want in life when you turn to that thing whether a little statue or a stack of bills looking to it to give you what you need in life what you want in life then for you it has become the evil of idolatry and jesus told us the same thing in matthew 6 if you turn there look at matthew 6 verse 24 Very famous verse, you're probably familiar with it. Matthew 6, verse 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Now let's think about this for a moment, because many of us kind of feel like we serve wealth. I mean, you're going to wake up tomorrow morning, you've got to go to work. And you got to work like all week long to get that paycheck. You got to do it. So are you serving money? Well, that's not what Jesus means here. By serving money, what he means is you made it God. You made it your ultimate in life. That's what you believe is going to fulfill you. And so you orient your life around the pursuit of money. And Jesus's point is if you do that, if you put money on the pedestal of your life, then God isn't there. Pedestal will only hold one. Either the one true God or wealth as your ultimate pursuit in life. And so if you are chasing money, if that is the goal of your existence, then you are an idolater. When we love money, we make it an idol. Now, let's be clear, clarify something. When we talk about the love of money, it's not the money we actually love, right? I mean, unless you're like Scrooge McDuck, you're probably not hugging and kissing and swimming in your money. It's not the money we love, it's what the money will buy us. 
That's what we really love. That's why we idolize money, because we think we can use money to get what we want most in life. And so what are people trying to buy with money when they turn it into an idol? Well, three things. First of all, and and kind of the one that everybody thinks of, we idolize money when we think it's going to buy us satisfaction. If, If you think about your life and you think, what do I need to be happy? If it's anything that you can go out and buy with money, then you turn that into an idol. And so this is a person who who works incredibly hard and chases money to buy that bigger house or that new car, go on that incredible vacation or have that incredible experience. And none of those things are in and of themselves bad. But when that becomes your measure or means to happiness in life, then you've made an idol out of money because you're chasing satisfaction with it. So how do you know if you have idolized wealth out of a desire to find satisfaction? Well, you will have something other than God on the blank of this question. If I could just buy blank, I'd finally be happy. It's a trick question. If there's anything in that blank, then you've made an idol of it. You've made an idol of it because you're saying God is not enough for me. You're saying that what I have in Christ is not enough to find true happiness, true joy. I must have something else. And so because I must have something else, I make it my ambition in life to chase money so I can spend money on that something else that I need to be happy. This is what most of the world is doing. Chasing satisfaction, happiness through spending going to earn lots of money so I can spend lots of money on that next possession or experience that will finally make me happy. Some people, though, do the exact opposite. So there's a second way that we tend to idolize money. Some people chase money to find security. And, and how do you know if you are idolizing money to get security? Well, you will put something in this blank. If I have blank amount of money in the bank, I'll be content. If I just have this amount of money in savings or retirement or whatever it is, then I will finally be content in life. It's a trick question. If you put anything on the line, then you've made an idol out of your wealth. Because you're saying that God is not enough for me to be secure. God is not enough for me to, be, to feel safe and, and content. I must also have this amount of money in, in savings. And the Bible's very clear that's not true. If you have zero money in the bank, but you have Jesus, you have everything. Hebrews 13.5 tells us, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have, however much it is, because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. True security, true safety in life is found in the promises of God, not in your bank account. Security is found in God's faithfulness, not a 401k. Now, let's be clear. That doesn't mean you shouldn't save. God wants you to be a responsible steward with the things he's given you. But, but here's where it becomes a problem. And, and for Julie and I, this is where we struggle. We, we grew up in families that prioritized financial responsibility. We were taught, even as young children, that we needed to save. And so for both of us, it's, it's hard to spend money. We, we default towards saving. It's good to save. That's a very good and important thing. But it becomes a sinful idol. When you find that you are trusting in that savings account or retirement account to make you feel secure and safe in life. And so if you think about it for a moment, when the irony around money is that you can idolize money either by spending too much or saving too much, right? The person who is a, a, a big spender is just as much an idolater of money as a person who is an obsessive saver. 
They're just trying to find two different things with their money that ultimately only God can supply. The big spender's trying to find satisfaction. The big saver's trying to find, trying to find security. And for both of them, it has become an idol because they are turning to that money to provide something only God can provide. So you can idolize money by, by turning to it for your security. Third way that people idolize money is they use money to try to get love and respect. This is very common. In, in all societies, but here's what it looks like in American, Western, modern society. What is the American dream? Well, you go to college, good college, you work hard, get good grades, you get a good career. And, and you rise in that career and get promotion after promotion. You're earning more and more money and you get married and you have 2.5 kids and a dog. And you go buy a big, beautiful house with a pool in the back in a safe neighborhood and you have arrived. And those are the kind of families that our culture looks up to and says, there's a successful family. They're financially successful. They have reached the American dream. But let's recognize the American dream costs an incredible amount of money. And it's more and more every year. And so there's a ton of people in our society and throughout the world that are chasing after money because they're trying to buy love and respect in the eyes of their community. They've idolized money because they think it can buy them that. Now, let's look at something for a second. Let's, let's step back and realize that all of the things that I've mentioned that we do with our money, none of them are inherently bad. None of the things I've said yet. Buying a big house, not inherently bad. Going on a nice vacation, not inherently bad. Saving for retirement, not inherently bad. None of those are bad things. They're actually good things. But here's the problem, and I think Tim Keller really puts it perfectly. The human heart takes good things, like a successful career, love, Material possessions, even family, and turns them into ultimate things. Our hearts deify them as the center of our lives because we think they can give us significance and security, safety, and fulfillment. We think that idols are bad things, but that is almost never the case. The greater the good, the more likely we are to expect that it can satisfy our deepest needs and hopes. Anything can serve as a counterfeit God, especially the very best things in life. That is so true. All of these good things like buying a house, saving for retirement, getting a promotion at work, all of these are good things. But when they become ultimate, when we add them to the addition in our minds and say to, to be safe and secure and successful in life and have love and honor, I must have Jesus plus something then we've turned that good thing into an idol. That, that is idolatry. What God wants us to recognize and what the Bible declares over and over and over again is that if you have trusted in Jesus, you already have all of the satisfaction, security, love and honor you will ever need. If, you, if you've trusted that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead, then you have... You realize this, you have eternal satisfaction to look forward to. You're going to have eternity with God in heaven. It's going to be perfect and no one can take that away. And you have complete security. No one can pluck you out of the Father's hands. You have an eternity that is absolutely safe no matter how much money's in the bank. And you have the ultimate love and honor because guess who calls you his own son? God, the creator. There's nothing the American dream can offer you that you don't already have in him. So you already have everything that you want in life. The problem is, even though I know that theologically, I really do. I mean, I went to seminary for four years to figure that stuff out. I know it theologically, and yet it is still so hard not to chase after money 
to try to find more satisfaction, security, and love in life. I don't have to try at idolatry. It's my natural bent. It's what I naturally do. I think John Calvin put it perfectly. Every one of us is, even from his mother's womb, a master craftsman of idols. That is what the human heart does. It chases satisfaction, security, and love in the things of this world. And why is that a problem? If we all struggle with idolatry, who cares about that? Why does that an issue? Well, a couple reasons why that's an issue. Number one, it angers God. It's not hard to prove that. If you just turn to the Old Testament, look at the Ten Commandments. How many do you think are about idolatry? First three. 30% about idolatry kind of seems like overkill. Like, just say it once and you're done. God said it three times. Why? Because it's really important to him. He hates idolatry. Why does he hate it? Because he loves us. And he knows how incredibly destructive idolatry is. And that's point number two. It destroys us. The idolatry doesn't destroy God. It destroys the idolater. Idolatry is poison to the idolater. And, and if you want to prove that, if you want to understand what idolatry does to you, your key chapter in the Bible is Isaiah 44. So I'm going to put a little bit of it up here, but I encourage you to go read it this week. Isaiah 44, all about the destruction of idolatry. This is all who make idols are nothing. And the things they treasure are worthless. Those who would speak up for them are blind. They are ignorant to their own shame. Craftsmen of idols are nothing but men. They will be brought down to terror and infamy. That's a promise. That's God speaking. And he's promising that those who make idols, whether you're talking about 3,000 years ago making a little statue of wood or stone, or you're talking about today and somebody idolizing the money in the bank or the size of their house, that person will be blind. It says that's the first thing. They're going to be blind. They're not going to be able to see reality. And, and that's true. The more you chase after the idol of wealth, the harder you are going to have um, seeing life as it truly is. You're, you're going to be blind to reality. It actually tells us in the same chapter, the person who chases an idol, again, whether a statue or the idol of wealth, they're basically taking clay mud and smearing it over their eyes. The longer they chase that idol, the harder it will be for them to see reality. And the result is eventually they will be led in, into shame. They're, they're going to regret the way that they've lived. All that they've pursued is going to be nothing. It's going to be a house of cards that's going to fall down. Money will, in the end, disappoint them. And, and if you've lived long enough, I'm 41, I, I've lived long enough now to see it is true. The more you chase money, the more you will regret it. It will never give you what you think it's going to give you. It's always going to fall short. And there's a lot of verses I could take you to. There's a lot of stories from the news I could share. I'm just going to take you to one verse that I really like in Proverbs 18. Verse 11 is particularly powerful for Julie and I struggling with the idol of security in our wealth. A rich man's wealth is his strong city. It's what he counts upon. It's what he finds his security and safety in. And like a high wall in his imagination. Like a high wall, imagine he's up on top of his wall. He's looking down and everyone else is looking up at him. He feels so much respect because of his wealth. And he feels so much security. He has this high wall. No one can breach it. No one can get over it. The problem is the last three words of the verse. In his imagination. The point is, not in reality. All the respect and safety you think you bought with your wealth is an illusion. It could be stolen. The economy could tank. Or you could find out in our culture, all of a sudden, the top 1% of wage earners are despised by everybody else. Culture can flip on you. All of the respect and satisfaction and security you think your wealth is going to provide is an illusion. 
It will fail you in the end. Why? Because you are counting on money to give you something only God can. So you were doomed from the very beginning. Money can't buy you satisfaction, security, or love. Only God can give you that. And if you trust in money, it is going to end up costing you greatly. Not costing you in money, but costing you shame, costing you blindness, costing you futility. And the point of all of this is to say, when you think about money, money is a wonderful servant. You can do a lot of great things with money, but it is a terrible God. If you chase money as the ultimate thing in your life... It will destroy you. Okay, so if this idol of money is a destructive thing that angers God, what are we going to do about it? How do you break the hold that money and wealth has on your heart? Well, God's solution to the problem of idolatry is generosity. If you want to crush that idol that money and wealth has become in your heart and in our society... The, the response is generosity. You just need to be generous. And let me show that to you. Let me unpack that. Look again at Matthew 6, verse 21, another really famous verse. Jesus says in Matthew 6, verse 21, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, where your money, where your, mel- where your wealth is, there your heart will be also. Jesus means two things in that verse. Both are equally true. Okay, so let me unpack these for you. The first thing that Jesus means is that how you spend your money reveals your heart. That's absolutely true. Money is valuable, so you're only going to spend it on things that are valuable to you. And so the point of that is to say, if somebody who does not know you wants to know what you truly love, what do they need to do? Look at your credit card expenses. Just look at your financials. If you gave a person all of your detailed financials over this past year and they look through every line, they'll know what you value in life. So I'll, I'll give you some examples. If they look over all your financials and they see that, wow, almost every penny you earn is going to your mortgage. Well, it could be that you, you don't have a, a whole lot of income yet and you bought a starter home and starter homes in this town are crazy expensive and there's nothing you can do about that. But it could be that you're earning a good living, you, you have plenty of salary coming in, but you just bought such a big house that all of your money goes to that payment. You bought more house than you could afford, and what does that tell them? It tells them you really love your house because you were willing to give up everything that you could share, everything that you could give, everything you could spend on anything else to have that house. Or maybe they look at your financials and they see that, wow, almost every penny is going to savings. Well, that could be telling them that your savings account is your idol in life. Or maybe they look and they find that, wow, almost everything this person makes that they don't have to spend on necessities is going to vacations and and travel. And there's nothing wrong with travel and vacations, but if there's nothing left over to give or to share, well, what does that say? It means travel and vacations is what you really love in life. That's your idol. So what Jesus is saying is where we spend our money reveals our heart. It shows the world what we desire most in life. That is true. But there's a second thing that he's saying that is even more important and more powerful. And if if you will master this principle, it will change your life. Incredibly important what Jesus is saying. How you spend directs your heart. You see, your, your heart, that is your desires, your affections, are so intimately connected with your money that one influences the other. And so what you love with your heart is where you'll spend your money. That's what we just talked about. But it is equally true that where you spend your money is what your heart is going to end up loving. 
In other words, your desires follow your spending. And so that's really important because what does that mean? If you want to love something more, what do you need to do? Give it your money. It's as simple as that. Your heart will follow your giving. And so if you want to love God more, if you, if you feel convicted that God isn't yet the center of your life, you want to love him more, how can you love him more? Very simple, give him more money. And your heart will follow. So give your money to God, to his kingdom, to the things that God loves. And the result will be your emotions will follow. That's, a lot, that's something a lot of people don't understand. Giving often precedes emotion. In other words, we think that we should feel and then we should give. No, often it's you choose to give and the result is you will then feel a love or a desire towards the thing you gave towards. You can direct your heart. So another example, let's say that you feel convicted that you don't care enough about world missions. You you want to care more about missions. What do you need to do? Give your money to missions and your heart will follow. I've had the privilege of teaching way over a hundred interns, fellows, and staff theology here at the church over the last decade. Which of those interns and fellows do you think I am most closely connected with today? The ones who got my money. The, The ones who I gave financially to support as they went overseas, those are the ones I stay in touch with. Why? Because my money went there and my heart follows. If you want to care about missions, give to it. If you want to care more about about the poor and needy, what do you need to do? Give. It's so easy to go through the week not thinking at all about the poor, completely unaware. But if you start to give to them, you will all of a sudden start to care about them and love them more. My wife and I had had the privilege of starting a charity to help people who need a car. And, And what I have found is that all of a sudden, I'm thinking a lot more about the needy in our community. I'm thinking about what do they need? How are they going to get to work? How are they going to get to the doctors? How are they going to find a place to live? I care. Why? Because I spent my money there. And my heart follows. And so that's a great thing. If you want to care more about something, just give it your money and your heart will follow. And so here's what I want you to do this week. Very practically speaking, I want you to spend time this week prayerfully asking God about your giving about what you're doing with your money. If you're married, sit down with your spouse and pray and talk about it. If you're single, get before the Lord and spend time prayerfully thinking about your budget and and where your money goes. And and as you think about that, I, I want you to imagine that you hand all of your financial statements to somebody who doesn't know you and you ask them to look over everything you've spent and saved and given in the last year and ask them, what do you think I care about? What would they say? Okay, so challenge yourself to think prayerfully about that. Ask God, God, please, please reveal to me idols in my life. If I am idolizing money as, as either a source of satisfaction or security or love or respect, please show me that idol. Help me to see whether I'm using my money as a tool to serve you or whether I'm using my money as an idol to get what I really want in life. So pray that God would open your eyes to see idols of wealth that you have allowed into your heart. And, and if you find that, like me, you struggle with idols of wealth, then my challenge to you is find a way to give it away. Find a way to give. 
towards, towards God or to something that God loves, to, to missions, to charity, to the church, to something. Find a way to give because as you give, your heart will follow. And, and the hold that that idol has over your heart will diminish. Your heart will be more and more devoted to Jesus. So spend time praying about what you're doing with your money. And, and as you pray, also, I would encourage you to pray over that every knee commitment card. Next Sunday, we're going to turn in those cards. And, and I've talked to you at, at great length about those commitment cards. It's not a pledge card. It's not a contract. It's a tool. It's a tool, number one, for our elders. So when they're all turned in, the number can be added up, and the elders will know what you are saying. They will know what God wants them to do next. But it's, it's also a tool for each and every one of us. Because as we think about that commitment card and what we're giving to our local church, it gives us an opportunity to think through the idols in our hearts. What is it that we truly care most about? What is it that we want to see God do in the world? So pray through your commitment card. And, and as you pray through your commitment card, the third thing I would challenge you to do is to begin to pray for one person and one place that need Jesus. We're going to do a really exciting thing next week. I'm, I'm really happy about this. We're, we're going to turn in our commitment cards. And when we do, our creative team has created these huge signs. I don't know whether they're metal or something. And we're going to come up and we're going to write on the signs the name of one person. It can just be their initials. Uh, and one place, like a city or a country, where you are committing to pray every month for the next two years for that person and that place to find and follow Jesus. Because that's what every knee is about. It's not about forcing people onto their knees like my son thought. It is about giving all that we are and all that we have to Jesus so more people can find and follow him. That, that is our hope. And so we're going to commit to pray every month for one person in one place that they would come to know Jesus through the work of Grace Bible Church. And, and ultimately, that's what we get to celebrate this morning in communion. As, as the men head back to prepare for communion, we do communion every month, and I'm always worried about something that you do on a routine basis that it's going to become mechanical and you're not going to think about it anymore. So let me remind you what communion is about. Communion is your opportunity to remind yourself by taking that little cracker and a little juice that everything you will ever need in life is already yours through Jesus Christ. Communion is your chance to remember that when Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead, that's not just history 2,000 years ago. That was Jesus giving you all of the satisfaction, all of the security, all of the love you will ever need. And so communion is our chance to say thank you to God for giving us that in Jesus. It's also our opportunity to go before Jesus and ask him to expose any idols in our hearts. And so I'm going to challenge you during this time of communion over the next few minutes. I want you to say thank you to Jesus. And then I want you to honestly ask him, Jesus, is there any idols I've allowed into my life? Whether it's an idol of money or, or of relationships or of physical appearance or of a possession, whatever it is. Is there anything that I have allowed in my life that I am adding to you to try to find satisfaction, security, or love? If so, please show me that and please crush that idol so that I would trust in you alone for everything I need. So go before the Lord, give him thanks, and ask him to show you the idols in your hearts. So then come forward. 
Paul says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you shed your blood on the cross so that we could have all of the satisfaction, security, and love we will ever need. Lord Jesus, we, we say that we believe that you are enough, that you are everything we will ever need, and yet we confess to you that it is still so hard for us not to idolize the things of this world. And so we turn to you, Lord Jesus, and we pray, please open our eyes to see the idols that we have allowed into our hearts to compete with you. Please show us where we have idolized things and then help us to to crush those idols and to trust in you alone, Lord Jesus. We pray that you would purify our lives and remove even the trace of idolatry from us. And We pray that you would grow within us greater and greater love for you, Jesus, greater and greater appreciation for what you have done. And and as you grow that love within us, we pray, Lord, that you would do that so that we can then go out and share that love with other people. And Lord Jesus, we want to come before you this morning. We want to lift up the billions of people in this world who don't yet know you. They are completely blinded by their idols. They are caught in the grasp of idolatry and they don't even know it. And so we pray, Lord Jesus, that your spirit and your people and your word would be at work in this world and that you would open the eyes of billions of people to see the truth and the glory of the gospel and to find freedom in you. We pray that you would use each and every one of us as a vessel of love and honor and truth to bring the good news of the gospel to the lost of this world. Thank you, Lord Jesus. You are indeed enough. We pray all this in your name and for your glory. Amen. You can stand and we're going to respond together in worship.